Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. I want to open with the book of Jonah. A lot of times we pay attention to the part with the fish, but I want to, uh, I want to open with the second half of the book. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Well, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let... Man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Fantastic preacher, apparently, Jonah is. You would think that he would be thrilled. Uh, What a a revival that an entire city, what may have been the largest city in the world at that time, turned to God. But it keeps going. But Jonah was greatly displeased, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. He doesn't sound happy. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about the great city? We're working our way through the book of Matthew, studying what the cost of discipleship is. 
And so many people think that the cost of discipleship is attending church on a Sunday morning, throwing a few dollars in the offering plate. If if you're really radical, you might might attend a midweek service, you might even tithe and and, and give give 10% of your income to the offering plate. But the true cost of discipleship is so much higher than that. Small is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few find it. In fact, few even find the road that leads to life. It's the difficult road to follow. The cost of discipleship is you. It's all of you. Uh, It's every bit of you. It all must be given to Christ. Jonah had to give up his right to be upset. Jonah hated Nineveh. Nineveh, the Assyrians, their capital city was the enemy of Israel. And they had attacked Israel. And Jonah had, you know, like, like the Ukrainians hating the Russians these days, it would be like a Ukrainian preacher being sent to Russia to preach. And Jonah was rooting for their destruction. He didn't want Nineveh to be saved. But if you're going to follow God, you put to death yourself. You take on God's will and realize that God loves everybody. Um, Jonah had to give up that right. James and John wanted to, to uh, see a city that they, that they tried to witness to wiped out. Uh, again and again through the Bible we read that people uh, are, are required by God to give up their grudges, their anger. When someone wrongs you, if you're a Christian, you give up the right to be angry and hold a grudge. But how do we do that? Because getting upset is easy. It's human nature. And it's easy to, to nurse that bitterness. How do we forgive others? Well, that takes us then to Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. And we'll read what Jesus says on this subject. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Seven biblically is a perfect number. You know, God, God rested on the seventh day, and again and again we see throughout the Bible that is considered a number of completion. That would be perfect forgiveness, right? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations and some, some variations of the text say 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you 
have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you, in anger. His master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. We must hear, we must hear what God is telling us. When, at the end of college, uh, I treated myself, I, as most of you know, I was born in, in Scotland. Uh, when I got out of college, I had no home, I had no bills, um, I, this was the perfect time to go backpacking across Scotland. Wait, you know, not when I've got a wife and kids and dog and, and, and bills to pay, and this was the perfect time. So I went, I decided I would go backpacking across Scotland, and, and my father, uh, my parents, my, my dad was very generous and said, here's the credit card. Spend what you need to. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, enjoy it. You'll regret it if you don't. And so I did. And when I got back, I was promptly presented with my new credit card, maxed out, as he had taken all of the debt that I had accumulated on that month and put it on my own credit card with all of that debt. So I started uh, at, the, so at the age of 22, fresh, fresh out of college, fresh back from Scotland. I began with my credit card debt. So, of course, I got a job, and started paying it off. And it was not a lot. I had saved up for the trip to go to Scotland. If you're fr- fresh out of college and you don't have money, it, it, might, it seemed like a lot. It's $1,400 is what I'm remembering. You know, it took a little bit to pay that off, waiting tables. But, you know, it, it, $1,400 is a real number. Do you know what's not a real number? The U.S. debt is currently $30 trillion. Now, here's what's terrifying about this. I, last time I preached on Matthew 18, back in Illinois 10 years ago, that number was $1.5 trillion. In 10 years, we've multiplied that number by 20, which is insanity to me, because that's already a made-up number. That's not a real number. In 15 years, by my math, in 15 years, if we continue that rate, we'll hit that number quadrillion. And, and that's just not real. Um, we are so, it's, a made of, it's certainly more than I can count. $100, I can, I can imagine. You know, we talk about what people can, can wrap their brains around. I can imagine 100 When I was a kid and they did those little squares and you got a little, you know, you're trying to figure out numbers and you got something that's 10 squares long, 10 blocks this way, 10 blocks that way, no big deal. I can imagine 100. I can imagine 1,000. Um, a million? A million is too big for me to imagine. Apparently, t- this guy that owed 10,000 talents, I'm sure you've heard this, but if you didn't, that is the equivalent in modern culture of about $60 million. This servant owed $60 million. There are a lot of questions that then come up. How does a servant get $60 million in debt. The average American in their lifetime, currently, if you look at Google this, will in their lifetime make $1.7 million. That's the average American. Some people more, some people less. But the average American in their lifetime, that's it. And, and that assumes an annual income of, on average, $40,000 a year, uh, that you will end up with about $1.7 million in earnings in your lifetime. How do you get servant 
60 million in debt. It's an, it's an unimaginable number. That's obviously part of the point that Jesus is making. It is, it is an unrealistic number. Um, more than, you know, that's 15 lifetimes worth of, of income. 15? Yeah, 20. Whatever the number, 40. I don't know what the number is. I'm not doing my math quick in my head this morning. It, it's an unrealistic number for normal income, let alone a servant's income. I understand. How does somebody get that far into debt? Our government knows how to get that far into debt. I understand that. It's somebody else's money. But how does a servant get $60 million into debt? That's hard to grasp. And the master says, well, tell you what then. I'm just going to throw you and your wife, your kids in jail. Um, we're going to sell you off into slavery, sell everything that you own to recoup that money. With all respect to my wife and daughter, we're not worth that much. We're not going to fetch that much. Um, and everything that we own isn't worth that much. Most of us are not worth that. We're, we're fooling ourselves if we think, well, yeah, go ahead, sell one of us off, and we'll get $60 million. That's just not feasible. Um, it, it, it's not true. So how much of a, I mean, how much of a dent would that have made on, his, on what he owed? Next to nothing, right? So comparatively, this guy is worthless. Everything that he owned, including him, his wife, his kids, could be sold, be like spitting into the ocean, just would make no difference. And he says, he has the audacity to say, wait, 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 give me a bit of time, I'll pay it back. On servants' wages, $60 million. Uh, Your... Your portion, you know, we get to these imaginary numbers. You probably know this. Your portion of the of the U.S. debt, every per, everybody owes half a million dollars now. That's what we're up to. Our portion of the U.S. debt, each one of us, every single one of us, half a million dollars. Um, according to the Internet, the average person in, in Elkins makes, you know, $20,000, uh, $25,000. We know that this is a struggling part of the country. That would take the average person in Elkins anywhere from... 20 to 25 years to pay off their portion of the debt if they never spent a penny on anything else. It's a huge number. Um, it, if one person tried to pay off the national debt on an average income, it would take one and a half billion years. We're at that point. Again, imaginary numbers. And, and this is part of the point that Jesus is making. You know, it, it's not... Is it a ludicrous analogy? No, it isn't. It's ludicrous if we're talking about a servant owing a master money. But all of us begin life in debt, you know, and that's the point. You know, you what you say? I didn't. I didn't earn five hundred. I didn't earn half a million in debt. That's not my share of the debt. I didn't do that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if you're born an American, that's your share of the debt. Um, you may not have earned it yourself, but it's it's every American's share now because of the way that we're spending. Um, all of us are born with a greater debt and, and not thousands of dollars. We begin with a debt that is more incomprehensible than the running debt total of the, of the United States government. Um, the gulf between us and God, because of this debt of sin, is bigger than, in, I mean, it's bigger than the galaxy, the universe. You know, we talk about, you know, as I said, it kind of boggled my mind when scientists told us 
what you see in the sky, there are stars. Those aren't really stars, most of them. Most of them are other universes, and it's the light of billions of stars from so far away that it's almost incomprehensible hitting our eyes that those aren't stars, they're universes, and that there are billions of universes. That just, I, my brain can't comprehend that. Those are, those, are, those are numbers that are too big. And yet, the Bible says that because of sin, I am separated even further than that from God. How can we get that level of debt? Sin distances us so great from God, and I don't think that we get it. Uh, how, how can we? We can't wrap our brain around these, these, these concepts that are so big. And so Jesus gives us a parable. And because we don't know talents and how much a talent is worth in denarii, and, and, and to be clear, somebody will say, well, why didn't the people who translated the NIV put, put numbers in there? Because the value of money is constantly changing. And had they written this back in 1984, the number would, would be off. I'm using the 1984 edition of, of the NIV. We're... In 1984, 10,000 talents would have a different value than today. So there's that danger of putting it in modern terms, and then it's going to be outdated in a few years. So we just have to kind of keep track of that on our own. Um, sin is huge. It separates us from God, and we don't take it seriously enough. And I get it. We, we don't want to focus on it all the time and be, dispre- be depressed, but it's a big deal, and we treat it so flippantly. And so Jesus gives us this parable to talk about forgiveness of debt. Um, that doesn't mean that we should ignore it. It doesn't mean we should hyper-focus on it. But this man was forgiven, and, and it's good news. And we have been, we who have accepted Christ as our Savior, have chosen to be baptized into his name and to follow him, we have been forgiven a greater debt. We may not, and, and I don't know that we can get the amount. I don't, I, 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 I don't know that we can wrap our, our brains around that. Um, but we can be thankful for the greatest gift that we can imagine. Let us not as Christians try to, let's just try not to take God's gift for granted. Um, let's, let's treat God's forgiveness of us as the big deal that it is. Too often we think, ah, God forgave me, that's his job, I wasn't that bad of a person. We are. We don't, we don't get to say that. Sin separates us from God that much. Um, we, we, we treat sin as if you say a few Hail Marys and, and it goes away. And okay, so maybe we don't do the Hail Marys here, but maybe, unfortunately, we can get just that level of dismissive. But sin is a big deal. And forgiveness is an enormous deal. It's, it's huge. And that's Jesus' point. God forgave our 60 million debt on a servant's income, the point being it can never be paid off. It's just not humanly possible. Are we thankful? We should be. Don't, don't just hear, but listen to what he's saying. It's a debt that we could never repay. And it's not... The master doesn't say to that servant okay, I'll give you more time. Okay, you can start making payments, right? He just cancels it. He just cancels that level of debt. It's just wiped out. How can, how can we forgive others if we don't care that we have been forgiven? We have to hear what God is telling us. And then we humble ourselves. 
So I actually want to go back to the beginning of the chapter because context is everything. And this parable didn't come out of nowhere. So back in chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he's happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. And in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. So how serious is sin? It's pretty serious, right? And so how are we to be? And the biblical answer comes back, we are to be innocent. What, what is greatness? God says greatness, getting to heaven, means not focusing on greatness. If all we ever do is focus on ourselves and how we've been wronged, and how hard our life is, we will never be able to forgive other people. When the world revolves around us, when we're always right and everybody else is always wrong, there's no room to draw close to God. We have to be humble. Being Christ-like means humility. Forgiveness of others comes when we're not focused on ourselves and what we think we deserve. If someone wrongs us, we brush it off because only Christ matters. And Jesus died for everyone, even the person that wronged us. Part of humility is being able to admit that we've had this attitude, that it's been all about us. And, and that's the beginning of learning humility. But then it, but, but it, it, it grows to say that it, it's admitting that we're wrong. Uh, honesty follows humility. And, and when we're honest about the fact that, it, that, that it's not about us, that, that we're in the wrong, humans by nature are so defensive. That's just baseline. Somebody makes an attack against you, the baseline is to get defensive. Uh, we, 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 we push back, we have different strategies, we shut down, we walk away. Anything other than, conf- than to consciously consider maybe I'm in the wrong. 
God tells us we're in the wrong. Uh, sin is wrong. It's not, it's not defensible. We have to get rid of it. To accept the grace of Jesus Christ, we must admit that we are sinners in need of saving. And, and that is a blow to our pride. We live in a world that has said that pride is a virtue. Pride is a sin. Let's be very clear on that. Anyone that says that pride is a virtue uh, will struggle to get, I will say, won't, won't draw close to God because pride is a sin. The Bible is very, very clear on this. Um, we, we need to admit that our human ways are wrong. We need to admit, we have to be honest, that we need God, that his ways alone are correct. Humility and honesty proceed, precede forgiveness. We have to be humble. We have to be honest with ourselves. And until we have a godly understanding of who we are and who we're not, we're not perfect. Once we understand who we are then we can, and, and, and who we are with God, then we're, then we're able to forgive other people. Forgiveness is very inhuman. Human nature is to hold a grudge. Human nature, is, which is sinful, is to say that I deserve to be mad at you for any slight. It is godly to let go of ourselves and to be able to forgive others, but that only comes through Christ. We have ourselves in the wrong place, and then, and then when we're in the wrong place, and it's all about us, then everybody else is in the wrong place too. If everybody's self-absorbed, I mean, if everybody treats themselves like the center of the universe, then everybody's wrong. God alone is the center, and we revolve around Him, and we're only right when we're right with Him. And so, and so we have to be righteous. We have to hold fast to righteousness. Here's, here's the neat thing to me. I don't think that this passage, Matthew 18, is about your and my salvation. Certainly not as, as the core concept. I think we apply it to that. You've been forgiven so much, isn't it awesome you get to go to heaven? And I think that we do then. I'm not going to say that that's not there. But the question that prompted this was Peter's question, how many times do I need to forgive somebody? And, and Jesus' answer, and yeah, there are textual variations, either 77 or 77s, which would be 70 times 7. Minor, minor linguistic variation that's not even worth getting bent out of shape about because nobody keeps track that long. That's the point. Peter, if you're counting, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> You, for, you keep forgiving until you lose track. It's, an, it, it's a number that, that the point is not the number. The point is that we're no longer keeping track. We're just forgiving people. The point is, well, how are we supposed to get along with each other? How, do, how are we supposed to treat one another? If we've been forgiven so much, how can we be unkind? How can we be unforgiving? with others around us. When God has forgiven us, how can we be so unforgiving? I think that we forget. Uh, or maybe we never, we never understood, or maybe we didn't care that we were forgiven. But this is an essential doctrine of Christianity. If as Christians we're grateful for what we receive, we would forgive. I recently, just in the last couple of weeks, um, uh, uh, some friends I uh, had a couple of, of non-Christian friends who said some things that were taken poorly by a couple of Christian friends of mine. I don't think that they meant anything wrong. 
I absolutely don't. They wouldn't be my friends if I thought they were mean people. Uh, I, I, think, I think they phrased things that came out wrong. These two Christians that I know were horribly offended, wouldn't accept the apology and did this, we're never speaking to you again and called them all kinds of terrible names. And I'm mortified because the non-Christians were apologetic, were humble, admitted that they phrased things poorly, and the people that claimed Christ held on to their pride, chose not to forgive, chose, and, and, and in my opinion, set a terrible example of Christianity. Uh, and, 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 I'm ju- and I'm just, I'm embarrassed and I'm mortified at that example. Um, Christ calls us to better. Our, in our forgiveness, we make a witness to the world. In our lack of forgiveness, we make another witness to the world. Yes, you will get your feelings hurt in life. Be a good Christian, please, and get over it. Since it's not about you, you can go home, sulk in the corner of your favorite armchair for a little bit, and then pick yourself up, and let's keep going. Um, Grow up and move on, because Jesus told us in in, in, in the Lord's Prayer, God, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and if we're not doing that, well, now we're mocking God's forgiveness in our own life. You can choose to live in bitterness over what is done to you, but what good is that? I mean, we even know at a medical level that hanging on to bitterness eats away at us, causes all sorts of nasty chemicals in us, acid reflux, and all these other things that, frankly, will shorten our lifespan. And that's just the physical stuff. Spiritually, it's worse. Bitterness will eat you up and you will fail to see the grace that God has given you. And so here's, here's one of these big points of this passage. The first servant... So, you know, we look at this servant who goes out and finds a guy that owes him the equivalent of $5. That's what the, that's what the 100 denarii I represent. They're worth about a nickel each. So a guy that owes him 5 bucks and has him thrown in prison until he can pay back 5 bucks. I mean, frankly... He could have surely gone to a friend and borrowed five bucks, but this guy didn't even give him that, that chance to pay back the five bucks. And we can look at that and say, oh, that's so unreasonable. Let's be clear. Actually, it was kind of reasonable in the sense that he, he was owed five bucks. And the law wouldn't have thrown this guy into prison if he didn't legitimately owe the five bucks. The issue is not that that servant did anything wrong. He was within his legal rights to throw this guy in prison over the five bucks. The problem isn't that he didn't do anything wrong. The problem is he didn't do anything right. Too many Christians think that following God is about not doing anything wrong. There are all sorts of non-Christians out there that live very good lives. But they're not right with God. And they're on a terrible trajectory. Because it's not about avoiding wrong. It's about being Christ-like. We still go to hell if we don't just be, even if we do nothing wrong, we're still going to hell. This isn't about avoiding sin. Avoiding sin is hard enough. But the bigger problem is that not only are we called to avoid sin, we're called to do the right thing. I mean, you could, to avoid sin, you could get get off work, go home, hide in your house. If I don't interact with people, I won't sin against them. Um, don't turn on the TV, keep my thoughts pure, read my Bible, go, go home, read my Bible all day till it's time to go to bed, get up, go to work the next day, try not to talk to anybody so I don't offend them. Go home. That's not being Christ-like. 
Christ-like is giving of yourselves in ways that is, that, that is awkward, whether it's serving at common ground or, or whether it's, it's giving, giving of your money to, to, to worthy causes, to charities and, and to people that are in need, um, helping people mow their yards or all these other things. Being Christ-like is hard. And, and, and we're called not just to avoid sin, but to do good. And that's where this servant failed. It wasn't that he was in the wrong. It's that he wasn't in the right. Churches, as churches, as Christians, we struggle with sin. But, but more churches and, and Christians, I think, struggle with laziness. That we just don't do anything. Being Christ-like is not about dodging sin. The world needs to see Jesus in us. And that's an active thing. Our hymn of invitation today is hymn number 335. Man, forgiveness is forgiveness is essential if I want to be forgiven. It, it, it is absolutely essential, and I don't think that we treat it with enough seriousness. Are we ready to forgive others? I, I can't afford to keep score. I, if I was keeping score, I know this, I would be losing. <laughs> the score would be against me. So instead, can I forgive, not as a favor to others, not, not because I'm trying to hold it over them, but in gratefulness for the fact that I have been forgiven, can I forgive others? There is a peace and a release when we accept Christ's forgiveness and pass it on. Can we do that? It's hard. Can we do that? That's the call. Let us be free. If you're, if you're not a Christian, I want to talk with you about what God's forgiveness looks like in your life. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.